to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, historian Sarah Churchwell talks about Behold America, a history of America first and the American dream. The moderator is journalist Sarah Carey and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 20th of October 2019. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, so, yes, I'm Sarah Carey. This is Sarah Churchwell. Um, I read history at Trinity College for my primary degree, so I'm always particularly grateful to the festival uh, for asking me to take part in this. And, and I think Sarah very much um, agrees, too, of course, that we can't understand current affairs unless we understand the context um, in the sayings that people have and where policies have come from. And uh, her book, uh, Behold America, it it's really was a huge eye-opener for me and shocking in places um, when you see the context of these cliches, America first and the American dream, which are just casually and sometimes, of course, deliberately used in public discourse. And uh, the history of those cliches is what we hope to talk about today. Um, so we're going to go into the history of those phrases, um, but then bring it very much forward um, into the way they are used today. So we will be talking about Trump and there will be time uh, for questions. We'll do about 15 minutes worth of questions at the end. So have your question ready, please. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of information about Sarah. She grew up near Chicago, Illinois, and she earned a BA in English Literature from Vassar College and a PhD in English and American Literature from Princeton. She's Professor of American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of London. So Behold America is obviously one of her books, but she's also written about The Great Gatsby in Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of The Great Gatsby, which I think has some bearing on this conversation mm-hmm. too. And she's also written about The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe, which um, I'm putting on my book list. Her literary Journalism has appeared in the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, The New Statesman, The Financial Times, Times Literary Supplement, and The New York Times Book Review. And she comments regularly on arts, culture, and politics for television and radio. And her appearances include Question Time, Newsnight, and The Review Show. And she's also judged many literary prizes, including uh, the 2014 Man Booker Prize and the 2017 Bailey Gifford Prize uh, for nonfiction. So a um, so, uh, 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 heart critic, perhaps? <laughs> So, so there are two phrases that we want to talk about here: America first and the American dream. Perhaps let's start with the American dream. When did this concept of a dream first begin, and, and what was originally conceived mm. um, in that phrase? Yeah. So, you know, if you talk to most Americans, and I think probably most people outside of America as well, there's this kind of vague idea that the American dream goes back to the origins of the United States, and that it's something that, that must be in the founding documents somewhere, and that people were talking about it. Or alternatively, you sometimes hear people saying that it really came to the fore with the waves of immigration in the 19th century, and they think of it as being uh, as coming into being then but it's actually a much more recent phrase than that and um, it, what's interesting is that the um, now that we've we've got so much more digital um, searching capability than we used to have you can do I, I think of this book as a kind of as a genealogy of these phrases and and where um, until the kind of new technologies allowed us to look in different ways any American historian would have told you that the American dream as a phrase was popularized in 1931 um, um, with a, um, a best-selling history book called The Epic of America. And it's really important that it's a Depression-era 
context. So after the Great Depression, um, at the, in the nadir of the Great Depression, after the Wall Street crash of 29, America was taking stock and trying to figure out kind of where it had gone wrong. And um, and they, and what happened was this writer called James Truslow Adams said uh, where America went wrong it was in the 20s in chasing riches and forgetting the American dream because the American dream was of a higher aspiration. It wasn't just about materialism, right? Now, that's the opposite of the way that we tend to talk about the American dream now, right? And it's interesting to me that people will quote James Truslow Adams and they'll miss that that's what he's saying. And in fact, there's a, a brilliant bit at the end of that book, which I, I cut from this book and I now regret it. So I always bring it into talks because I <laughs> wish I'd kept it. Um, kind of always cutting for length and thinking, well, I should have kept that one. Um, at the end of his book, he actually says he has this, um, this image that for him always encapsulates the American dream. And he says it's a public library that a public library is the, is the emblem of the American dream. He's actually talking about the Library of Congress because it's publicly funded by the citizens for the betterment of everyone. And that, he says, is the epitome of the American dream. Well, I think you'll be hard-pressed to find very many Americans today who would say a public library is the epitome of the American dream, right? Everybody thinks it's a mansion and a big car and, a, and you know, rising standard of living and upward social mobility and all of that stuff. So I became very interested in, in um, tracing whether, because in fact, there are earlier traces of the phrase American dream in some important writers pre-1931. So I became very interested in kind of, well, actually, where did this phrase come from? Can we identify um, its earliest uses? And it turns out that it, that it emerged about a century ago, actually. Um, and so Truslow Adams popularized it, but it's out there and people are starting to talk about it and it was gaining traction as a way of, talk, as a way of fighting back against the Gilded Age in the late 1890s and around the, the 1880s and 1890s, the rise of monopoly capitalism. So who, the ones we call the robber barons, who are the Rockefellers, the Mellons, JP Morgan, the ones who are cornering the market and creating the first great monopoly capitalism and the first inequality. And, or, you know, huge, you know, rifts in inequality now that there's never been inequality before. Um, but the, what I found fascinating was that some of the earliest uh, uses of the phrase American dream that I found in the American political conversation anywhere um, were explicitly saying that that chasing that kind of wealth would be the end of the American dream, that robber barons were the antithesis of the American dream, that they would kill it. And one of the ones I found, which I actually opened the book with, um, which I'm very fond of, um, which is just from the turn of the century, which said that um, disgruntled multimillionaires will be the end of the American dream. And I'm afraid I did have a particular disgruntled multimillionaire in mind um, when I saw that who might destroy America. And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. And that's from 1901, I think. So what you're saying is that the American dream was rooted in a kind of a democratic equality absolutely. rather than equality of opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And so that massive inequality is antithetical to the American dream because the American dream is about collecting democratic opportunity, about opportunity for all. And they recognized very early that that kind of inequality just recreated aristocracy. And that then you've got the privilege to replicate their privilege and you will have opportunity for the few, not for the many. And was this supposed to be founded in the, uh, the independence and, and the declaration there and, you know, Jefferson? Uh, exactly. Yeah. So the idea was, so when I say that it doesn't go back to the founding, I mean that the phrase doesn't. Yeah. But, what it, but that notion that what it referred to was about 
about liberty for all, justice for all, opportunity for all. Those are, of course, the founding ideals of the nation. And they just got this catchphrase, the American dream is a way of talking about that. And if you think, of, so it's really, but again, it's the opposite of how we use it now. And that seemed to me a really important point to make. It's particularly important, I think, in the current political climate in which people on the right in America will constantly tell you that any kind of social democracy, any kind of healthcare or you know, universal healthcare or social security or any kind of you know, welfare state, um, they will say that's against the American dream. Right. And that free market capitalism is the American dream. But one of the most interesting things I found is that in the first 30 years that the phrase was being used, nobody ever used it to defend free market capitalism. Right. They used it to combat free market capitalism, to argue that free market capitalism was ruining America and that America. So it actually emerged from the progressive left as an argument for exactly the kinds of protections that Europe has created in its social democracies that now these right wing people will tell you are against the American dream. And what they were saying was this is the American dream. This is how we protect the American dream of opportunity for everyone. So is it the 1930s that you say that, that this when it becomes ev evolution? Popular. Yeah. yeah, because the depression makes that message catch hold. So until that point, there are people ignoring it, saying we're doing great, we don't need these kinds of protections. But then the crash happens, 25% unemployment, everybody can see that something terrible has happened, and everybody's worried that the American experiment is coming to an end, and, or is failing. Mm. And at that point, there's a reckoning. And then people start to take notice and to say, you're right, we were starting to destroy the American dream. We were supposed to be going for something better, not just to be richer, not just to have a bigger house. We were supposed to be trying for more than that. And then what happened next? How did it go back to <laughs> yeah. everyone's right to be a millionaire? Yeah, well, yeah. so then that's really about the post-war, it's really the Cold War that changed it. So, the, so the, the, that's what flips it on its head. So, um, so basically what happened after, um, as the Cold War begins, when America wanted to argue that, at the, so it's sort of the, the reverse of the depression in the sense of American triumph and triumphalism, American exceptionalism reasserts itself as the Americans won the war, um, you know, nobody else had anything to do with it, it was just <laughs> us. And, um, and, but then when the Cold War takes hold, American, de American democracy as kind of consumer capitalism in the way that it was starting to take shape in the 50s starts to get this ideological bent and they say this is going to demonstrate the failure of the Soviet way of life, of their approach. So communism becomes the godless evil empire, right? And American democratic capitalism becomes the American dream. And so it gets subsumed in this idea about, again, about upward social mobility. And so all of those sorts of post-war ideas about what American success would look like got incorporated in the American dream of democracy that was going to be exported abroad and save the world from communism. So you sort of see a bunch of different political and ideological arguments converge and it starts to shift the meaning of the American dream. So when Trump said, when he announced his candidacy and again um, in his inauguration speech, uh, sadly, the American dream is dead. Yeah. Uh, what was he doing there? <laughs> well, he was lying because everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. As, um, as, as uh, um, Mary McCarthy famously said about Lillian Hellman, everything she says, every word she says is a lie, including and and the. Um, and that's pretty much how I feel about Trump. Yeah, so yeah. I lay my cards on the table. Um, so, um, so, well, he was lying because he's not sad about it. Um, uh, he was lying because the, the American dream isn't dead. Um, it, it, certainly if we're talking about that older meaning of the American dream, which obviously he would not be aware of. Mm. Um, but, well, I mean, 
in fairness, not, that's not a cheap shot. Not many people are aware of it. But it is, I hear some chuckles there, and it's true he's not aware of much. So we wouldn't expect him to be aware of that history. But even people who are well-versed in American history aren't aware of this. Um, or I wouldn't have written a book about it, you know, yeah. if everybody knew it, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, well, that was pointless. Yeah. Um, so, the, so it's not well-known. So, but so in that sense, that meaning of it isn't dead because the aspiration remains and people want to improve America and to make it a better place. But of course, he was specifically speaking about a very narrow vision of what the American dream would mean for somebody like him. Mm. And what and what that phrase, what he was really saying there was that for middle class white people in the 1950s who had this idea that life would continue to get better and better and better, that that wasn't happening anymore. And that's kind of the story, you know, that he was um, that he was plugging into and and um, and amplifying and, and, and riding to political success. The thing about when you trace the phrase, what happens is, for example, in the 1970s, the American dream begins to shift again. Because for the first time in the wake of civil rights and in the wake of feminism, um, people started to point out that the American dream had never been available to all Americans. Yes, I was going to make that point. And that it had yeah. only ever been available to Americans like Donald Trump. So when Donald Trump says, first of all, and I mean, the guy's a billionaire, you know, well, we don't know if he's really a billionaire, yeah. but anyway, he's done okay. Yeah. Um, and he's inherited everything. So, so none of the relationship of what the American dream is supposed to mean has any bearing on his life. Um, but so he's got this kind of, you know, nostalgia for the 50s when America was strong and beat its chest and everybody cowed and wonder, you know, to the superpower or whatever. And, um, and so that vision of it was appealing, I think, to people who saw themselves as, as also invested in that dream. But the point is, is that the American dream was not available to all of these other people. And in that sense, the American dream is not dead because people like that, women and people of color and gay people and, you know, immigrants and, you know, and, 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 um, have continued to get access to power and privilege. And that's precisely what the political fight in America is about right so now. So when Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, that's exactly was he it. consciously tapping absolutely, into that? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So he is, uh, in the, sorry, I'm using the historical present, which drives some people crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in 1963, when King gives, I can't stop doing it apparently, um, gave the I have a dream speech, he was absolutely invoking that um, and suggesting that the American dream was something that had not been available to people like him. And that's what the speech says, is it says, I too have a dream. You know, mm. we too, African-Americans also have dreams, a dream that we will be treated in the same way, that we will have the same opportunities. And one of the things that, that I think my research suggests is that sometimes today, historians credit King with having been the first to point out that the American dream was not available to all, but that isn't true. And that was a, a widely made argument in the 30s when the American dream became a popular phrase. Many people pointed out that it was not equally available to African-Americans Americans, they also pointed out that it wasn't equally available to Jews. And um, because, of course, in the 30s, they were watching the rise of European fascism mm. and the anti-Semitic movements within America. So on the progressive left, people were saying, you know what, it is, the American dream is not available to everyone. So when Donald, somebody like Donald Trump says the American dream is dead, my hackles rise in a, in a million different ways. Because for other, you know, somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, in my view, the living embodiment of the American dream. And that ain't dead, right? right? That's exactly what they want to fight. He wants he he wants to kill that and to stop it, and to say the American dream belongs to people like him. But we're watch. I really believe we're watching it happen, and this is the so, the kickback. So and the you're kick hard. optimistic um, about that idea of the dream because I have been thinking, well, you know, maybe it is dead. Oh. You know, maybe it was always a lie. I, you know, you had an economy built on slavery. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a big lie. So, so you know, was <laughs> it ever one. true? But oh, oh. but you seem 
you're, no, you're it saying was never that. true. Yeah. It was absolutely never true. Yeah. But what and, and slavery is absolutely yeah. the, the biggest and and um and and cruelest and most brutal example of that. But you see, I don't think it's a lie. I, and I think it's an aspiration. And no, we were never anywhere near living up to the aspiration. Yeah. But what I found, and this is really, I try to argue this in the book, but I didn't want the book to be too much uh, what we call a thesis-driven book, you know, in academia, that it would have this argument that I was making. So there are various points where I try to say this, but I didn't like really hammer at home. But that I believe that the, the invocation and the reinforcement of this idea of the American dream created the political conditions that might make it possible to realize it. And that, the, and that in other words, keep, if we keep talking about the ideal, we protect our idealism. And, and we're seeing right now what it looks like when you don't protect your idealism. If you don't hang on to your higher ideals, you're left with very low ideals indeed, or no ideals whatsoever, and with pure cynicism and bad faith. And in my view, that's no basis for a system of government, you know. And is so, that why Trump was making this declaration that, that it's dead? Pure bad faith. Because pure you take away faith. the ideal. Exactly. Exactly. Because cynicism is his bread and butter. And so the um, and, and so playing on people who think that they want to get that back and think that it's dead. But it's a dream. You can't kill a dream. <laughs> So the point to me is that the dream remains valuable. And just because we didn't ever get anywhere near to living up to it doesn't mean that it's not a valuable ideal. It's still a good ideal. So one of the things I say at the end of the book is the fact that we didn't live up to it doesn't mean the American dream is corrupt. It means people are corrupt. Okay. Um, and people have always been corrupt, but we, but we can get better. And, what's, and I, you know, I know that sounds naive and American. I'm, you know, I am I'm my American and <laughs> optimism is bred in my bone. But, but my point is, that, which is a more serious one, is that I, I, and I'm watching this, you know, and I live in London, you know, I'm watching this happen on both sides of the Atlantic, both countries that I, you know, uh, am a citizen of. Uh, we're watching in real time an experiment in what happens if you try to do things not according to ideals, but just according to, you know, dog eat dog. And, you know, so people can lie and there are no consequences and they mm -hmm. can say whatever they want and there are no consequences. And, and so I, I see now that what we thought of as maybe naive idealism was protecting the conditions. It was creating the legal framework and the political framework wherein people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez could assert their rights. Without those ideals, they have no basis for political citizenship whatsoever. Okay. So I think it still creates the possibility of its own realization, but we have to keep fighting for it. Now, America First is something quite different. Sure is. That's uh, less optimistic. Yeah, it's, we take the turn now. It's shocking how dark yeah. uh, the history and the associations and how that was made manifest. So, so take us back to America first. Yeah, so, um, so having just said, I know mm. if you think I'm saying that America yeah, is some, taking you down yeah, some happy, cheery place <laughs> yeah. full of good people doing good things. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's not the case. Yeah. Um, so America first emerged at about the same time as the American dream. So the, the book really traces, the, the as I say, the genealogy of these two phrases, and, and at first when I was doing the research, I thought they were on parallel tracks, and they were articulating different points of view in about what the American experiment should look like and about what American power should, and indeed American identity, um, what it should look like. But I realized as I was researching it that they were not parallel tracks, they were converging, and that they converge around the debates around the entering the Second World War, and that that's the point where they come into direct conflict. Um, but in the early stages, they kind of are on these par apparently parallel tracks. Um, and America First uh, emerged as an anti-immigration sentiment. Woodrow Wilson used it in 1915 um, in a speech about what they called um, hyphenate Americans. 
and hyphenate Americans were immigrant Americans. And they were specifically speaking then in 1915, as you might imagine, about German Americans. But they were also talking about Irish Americans and they were talking about Italian Americans. Those were the three main immigrant communities at the time. And but there were lots of other ones, too. And in many articles at the time, you see them listing like one after the other, all of the you know, Czech Americans and Bohemian Americans. And, you know, um, and the um, and this created this uh, um, there was this political debate at the time uh, that was sometimes referred to as hyphenate hysteria. Um, and the idea was that hyphenate Americans were not true Americans because they had a dual loyalty. And any of you who have ever studied anti-Semitism know that that's an ancient anti-Semitic canard that says that the Jews have a higher loyalty um, to each other, to money. Um, there's often an anti-Catholic slur that the Catholics are not proper citizens because they have a higher loyalty to the Pope um, and they're not pop proper patriots. And there was a lot of that playing into the anti uh, Irish-American and anti-Italian-American um, sentiment. This idea that America in the view of some people, in the view of older Protestant settler communities, mostly from Britain, or at least they saw themselves as being the majority, that they were the true Americans. They were the real Americans. They indeed referred to themselves as Native Americans, mm. which is confusing in today's context when you realize they're actually talking about white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and they're referring to themselves as Native Americans. And when I do that with students, they always have this moment of like, wait a minute, I thought they were wasps. I'm like, oh, they are. Don't worry. They're like, oh, they are. are they saying they're first people? No, they're not. They're not saying that. At all. They don't even remember the American Indians. They're not even part of the conversation. So, and that's where the word nativism comes from, is the idea that they were the Native Americans because they came first and that they're the true Americans, the real Americans, and everybody else is the suspect, maybe half American, and at best, on a good day, you know. And, uh, and Wilson um, gives this speech in 1915 that's basically pandering to these xenophobic fears um, and says, and he calls on all Americans to declare themselves, is it another country or is it America first? Mm -hmm. So he basically stokes these fears. We think now of Wilson as the great liberal internationalist, um, and he was in, in important ways, but uh, as with you know so many humans, the legacy is much more complicated than but that. But how did that play from then when he did take America into yeah. the First World War? Well, so then what happened was America First, um, so even just before the, we, yeah. we got into the war, America First became such a popular slogan that Wilson ran on it as a re-election campaign in 1916, and his Republican opponent also ran on an America First campaign. So in 1916, you could vote for America First, or you could vote for America the First. first. Um, and I think it's really important that we understand how much traction it had in the American political discourse um, from 1915 to 1941, because people see it now as this thing that emerged with Lindbergh in 1941, and that's just not right. And it meant all kinds of things by the time Lindbergh used it at that point, which is really what my book is about. So... Um, in 1917, America enters the war, and at that point, it just becomes a pretty straightforward militaristic um, patriotic wartime slogan. So you've got to be for America first. You've got to support the war effort. But of course, for America, it was a short war effort. You know, we were only in the war for a year. And then it instantly got co-opted again into the slogan that would keep America out of the Treaty of Versailles and out of the League of Nations. So the great opponents of uh, the Treaty of Versailles in America were um, Henry Cabot Lodge and William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper magnate, who had, and he basically is a kind of Murdoch figure from a century ago, and he had um, America first on the masthead of all of his papers. And it was No Foreign Entanglements, which is this um, half quote from George Washington's farewell address 
stress. It's actually mangled and distorted, yeah. but as these things always are. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the so they used it then to say that America needed to stay out of Europe. And living through Brexit Britain, I may say that those arguments start to sound very, very familiar. I mean, they argue about there being a European cabal of overlords who are going to take away their sovereignty. And, you know, and you read that. I read that in, you know, 2016 and was like, I think I've read this before. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the, the and then um, President Harding ran on an America First campaign in 1920. He was removed in the greatest political scandal in American history to date. Um, I say... <laughs> I say in the we'll book. We'll get on to yeah, that. <laughs> I say in the book, American history isn't over yet. But yes, yeah. um, Harding was removed in the teapot. I, I should say not the p- biggest political scandal that was Watergate, but the biggest bribery scandal, mm-hmm. uh, the biggest corruption scandal was Harding um, in the teapot dome scandal, and um, and then his vice president became President Calvin Coolidge, and then he was using America first. So all of that's the political context. But then go on to yeah. um, this one hundred percent American and the one drop. This is where it gets really dark. This is where it gets really dark. So what happens is, so that's the political conversation and it's giving America first this legitimacy and um, and just, you know, omnipresence. So everybody hears this phrase, it's drummed into everyone's heads. And what happens is at the same time, actually beginning in 1915 and at the same point, and Wilson is... Um, tangled up in this history as well, um, was the, uh, the resurgence of a group that you will all have heard of called the Ku Klux Klan. And the Klan um, was originally created after the American Civil War, which is, you know, ended in 1865, and the slaves were emancipated. And white Southerners, white supremacists, um, in 1866 formed a group that they called the Ku Klux Klan. And they were uh, created specifically to put black people back in their place, um, to intimidate, to um, uh, use violence, whatever means necessary, including murder, um, to stop black Americans from exercising their new franchise, um, to stop them from competing economically, um, and all the, you know, every, in every way that they could to force them to vote Democrat. Um, you need to, it's complicated and we don't have time to explain it, so you just have to take my word for it. Uh, over the course of the 20th century, the, the um, position of the American parties in relationship to civil rights reversed. So in the 19th century, the Democrats were the party of the Klan. They were the party of slaveholders. They were the party of the agrarian South. And the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. And they were the party of abolition and republicanism. Over the course of the 20th century, we could do a whole lecture on how that happened. Mm-hmm. There are American history courses devoted to the question of what they call the political realignments in the 20th century. But so they flipped. Anyway, so in the, the, um, in the 19th century, they were trying to force black people who wanted to vote Republican on, on the abolitionist ticket um, to vote, or you know, the, the um, civil rights ticket to vote uh, for white uh, slaveholders who would re-oppress them all of that kind of thing. But then the Klan, on, that first Klan only lasted for five years and it was wiped out by federal forces. And, and then it was just kind of gone, but its practices continued. So white supremacism wasn't gone, it just, and particularly not in the South. It just wasn't organized into this group, the Klan. But they continued to lynch people in particular, and they didn't only lynch African-Americans, they lynched immigrants as well. They lynched uh, German-Americans, they lynched Italian-Americans, they lynched Italian nationals, Mexican nationals. Mexicans were um, great victims of lynching at the time. And so that practice continued, this, this vigilante justice, but of course it wasn't justice, it was intimidation, and it was terrorism. It was domestic terrorism um, to keep other people from asserting and, their and rights. And it's worth going into, I think, to explain you know, how these lynch, lynches were, were carried out. Yeah. I, very public yeah. and very brutal. Very like, brutal. People were not kidnapped in the middle of the night and taken off and strung up against a tree. It was Sometimes a lot. that happened. It was a lot worse. It was a lot worse. So a lot of the people who were lynched would have you know, preferred to have been strung up 
um, yeah. to a tree over what happened to them. Um, I don't think we want to get too graphic because mm. people find it triggering. Um, but it is, uh, we're talking about torture, um, dismemberment, um, all of the kinds of dismemberment you might imagine. Um, and worse than that, um, the first clan did that, by the way, as well. Um, the accounts of what they did are absolutely, um, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable what they did. Um, acts of torture that you can't even conceive of. And these were advertised in the papers. Exactly. Sorry, I always get a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's actually, well, well, because I don't want to share it and I'm not yeah. trying to be cryptic because yeah. believe me, you don't want to hear this. But also when you start thinking about it and you, uh, and you do know what they did, it is unbelievably shocking. And we're shocking. talking about the 1920s, the well, 1930s. So, well, I'm talking, yeah. I, so there mm. I was referring to the earlier mm. instances which were isolated. But then what happened was it started to grow. And, and it developed into the teens and the 20s in what, to what historians call spectacle lynching or public lynching. And what they would do is they would advertise that they were going to uh, lynch someone, usually an African-American, uh, um, although a, a Jew named Leo Frank was lynched in 1915, which helped kick off the second Klan. Um, and they would, they would um, print it in local newspapers announcing that it was going to happen at somebody's farm down the road at 9 p.m. tonight, come along for the lynching. They would hand out flyers to people as they got off the train and say, we're going to have a lynching this afternoon, come along. Um, people would bring kids. They would have popcorn. They took photographs. They, the photographs became postcards. They circulated them as souvenirs. And what a lot of them involved was um, publicly burning people at the stake. They would torture them first and then raise and lower them over a fire. Mm that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, riddled with bullets. Then they would often do all kinds of unspeakable acts to the corpse. Mm -hmm. um, medieval, right? I mean, but, you know, worse than drawing and quartering. Mm -hmm. um, dragging them through the streets, tarring and feathering, all kinds of unimaginable violence. And this is in the 1920s and through into the 1930s. It was FDR who finally put an end to public lynching. Went on until 1936, 1937. Rosa Parks, the great civil rights activist, got her start as an NAACP investigator into lynching. In the 30s, she was down there looking at what white Southerners were doing to African-Americans. And what happened was the, the Klan then started to kind of organize this violence and to legitimate white supremacism. And they, create, and they needed to have kind of um, public cover and they created these slogans. They were also recruiting slogans. And what they said was they were the only organization that was 100% American, which is a reference back to this hyphenate idea that they're pure American, real Americans. But it's also a reference an encoded reference to what was called the one drop rule. And the one drop rule was the rule within slavery that said that if you had one drop of black blood, you were legally black and therefore legally subject to slavery. You had to be 100% white, 100% Anglo-Saxon to be legally white, which means that you had to be 100% American to be legally um, uh, uh, subject to all of the rights of citizenship, to be entitled to all of the rights of citizenship. So anybody who was less than 100% white was less than 100% American mm. because they weren't full citizens. That was the import of the Dred Scott case, which helped precipitate the Civil War. And that's why the 14th Amendment is so important because the 14th Amendment was the first one that said that that all Americans, anybody born in America, regardless of the color of their skin or their heritage or anything, it gave birthright citizenship and said all Americans are equally American and equally protected by the law. And guess what amendment the Trump administration wants to go after? The 14th. They've said that, which is absolutely that's, that's, astonishing. That's the frightening thing about this, is about how explicit yep. uh, the connection is made between Trump saying America first, yep. and America first was the slogan of the Klan, Klan so while they, they were doing While this. they were doing this. So they, they would print these banners saying, you know, come along to an America yeah. first lynching. 
Um, and that's why when black people today say this is a white supremacist slogan and white people go, no, it's not. And I'm like, mm, it is. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that the people using it today are all using it with a white supremacist intention. Yeah. But the history is there. So what I always say to people when they say, well, do you think that all the people who voted for Trump know this? Well, no, again, as with the American dream, I don't think most people know this. That's why I wanted to write a book about it. But the point is, if you didn't know what Heil Hitler meant, or you met somebody who didn't know what Heil Hitler meant, you wouldn't go, oh, too bad. Well, they didn't know, yeah, yeah. did they? So go on then, you know. It was innocent enough. You'd sit them down and you'd explain to them why that is a terrible phrase and why you would never want to use it and what the history is. So how do you fight this? Um, you know, you were saying uh, when it came to entry into World War II and Lindbergh, you know, then people became awake to what, the, say, the toxicity of America first and it, and it was crushed then. So take us a little bit through that yeah. and then we'll come on to, yeah. to today. So basically, so what yeah. happens is then America first, although the Klan started to decline in influence um, in the in the late 20s, part, so it had great political influence, which we haven't mentioned, which is important. People think of it as um, a fringe society because it was a secret society, but it was not fringe. In the 20s, they penetrated government. They bragged that they had mayors from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, from coast to coast. Their highest um, uh, membership rate was in Indiana, in the Midwest, not in the Deep South, and lynching was spreading up out of the Deep South. There were, there were double lynchings in Minnesota, in Duluth, Minnesota in their early 20s, in Oakland, California. Um, so it was very much becoming a national phenomenon and, and you know, very much worrying a lot of people, of course, as a result. Um, and so the, the, um, but the Klan's influence started to wane because they had um, financial corruption scandals and a sex corruption scandal. I mean, who knew? These guys always get brought down by the same stuff. It's always sex and corruption. Um, the KKK were actually grifters. Um, some a historian once described them as um, the world's most racist pyramid scheme, um, which is a very good description. Um, so they were grift, I mean, these guys are also always con men and grifters. And white supremacism is a handy way for them to make a buck. Um, and so, although the Klan declined in influence, America First remained part of the conversation because it had become so encoded. And people would refer to, you know, you would say basically the same way that today we would just use the phrase MAGA to, re to refer to a certain person as a shorthand. You go, oh, it's a MAGA guy. That's, the, oh, as the, you know, and a journalist will say, oh, it's a bunch of MAGA types, right? Make America great again. So we know that that's a shorthand for Trump supporters. In those days, they, 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 the phrase they used was America Firsters and 100%ers. Um, so they would say, oh, the room was full of a bunch of 100 percenters. And, that, and it was basically the equivalent of the way we would use MAGA today, that that's what they were um, uh, uh, you know, standing for. And so America first stayed in the conversation, even though the Klan's power started to ebb. And it began to be um, taken up by self-styled American fascist groups. So then, as European fascism took hold, there were American fascist groups that were explicitly uh, um, uh, associating themselves with um, with Mussolini. Indeed, the Klan tried to have an alliance with Mussolini, which is sort of hilarious because they were anti-Catholic, but that's another story. Um, and so they saw, but they saw, they wanted to create this, um, uh, you know, framework for a white supremacist um, world takeover, basically, for world domination, which again sounds kind of familiar. Um, so America first remained in the news. And then when the Second World War happened and there were debates about whether the United States should enter the Second World War, whether Europe's problems were Europe's problems and America should stay out of it, the people who said that we should stay out of it did so in the same language they used to argue about staying out of the League of Nations. And indeed, they would hearken back to that argument and say, just as we stayed out of the League of Nations, we should stay out of the Second World War. It's a European problem, not our problem. We should put America first. 
America's interests are protected by um, remaining out of the war. But of course, as people pointed out at the time, to use that phrase by that point meant it had accrued all of these associations. So it also meant that you were aligning yourself with mm -hmm. white supremacists. You, you were saying that you were, uh, um, and, and that you had this nativist and xenophobic idea about protecting a certain kind of American, that you were protecting the 100% American vision of America, um, and that everybody else could fend for themselves. And so people saw um, immediately that it was encoded anti-Semitism that said, we won't protect the Jews. We don't care what's happening to Jews. We'll turn them away if they are refugees. There were quota systems that had been passed in 1924 in the name of America First. And it was those quota systems that kept Jewish refugees from Hitler out of the US. Why FDR famously turned boats away um, because the America First uh, um, uh, legislation was still in place. And then the America First Committee was formed, which was the official Keep America Out of the War movement. Now, it was very large, and at its height, it had 800,000 people in 1940, and they, that included pacifists and conscientious objectors and socialists. It was a broad church, and it was by no means all fascists or uh, anti-Semites or, or um, Hitler sympathizers, but the problem was the Hitler sympathizers were in there, and the anti-Semites were in there, and America First didn't disavow them and didn't distance itself from them. And then um, Charles Lindbergh, who was very well known as an anti-Semite, um, and now we have his diaries and things, and it's like really, really explicit. Guy was like full-on anti-Semite. And, um, and he became the spokesman for America first, and he, and he gave this um, speech on September 11th, 1941, where he basically um, parroted Hitler's language about the Jews controlling finance and media, the language from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which you know is this anti-Semitic tract, and that Hitler circulated. And it's basically the same argument about the Lugenpresse. And, um, and so Lindbergh aped Hitler's and Goebbels' rhetoric to such a degree that he caused this huge outcry, and it was a backlash. And, um, and suddenly, America First was scrambling and in disrepute um, and they had to distance themselves from Lindbergh and say, we're not anti-Semitic. Um, we don't think the Jews are responsible for the war. He also said that Britain was responsible for the war and was trying to draw America into it um, and that we should just um, let Europe fight it out. And if Hitler won, that was fine. So presumably Pearl Harbor just crushed yeah, that. which was two months later, right? So then, yeah. or three months later. So December 1941, Pearl Harbor. And then suddenly America first is completely in disrepute. So in the absence of a Pearl Harbor equivalent now... <laughs> how do you combat America first <laughs> yeah. when, you know, it, it's now being invoked again yeah. and, and we see what's been done to the Kurdish people. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you, well, you get the bastards out of power. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get them out of office, right? I mean, that's what you got to do. Yeah, but look at the support. <laughs> There's still huge yeah. support there but for But this him. is the so, problem, right? Yeah. So the issue is, and this is probably what I want to show in this history, is that Trump doesn't come out of nowhere. And the people who are shocked to learn that, you know, that there are these white supremacist energies in America um, haven't been studying American history carefully enough because American historians are not surprised by this. And certainly African-Americans are not surprised by this. They've been dealing with it. Yeah. So how do we eradicate? I mean, it's like asking, how do we eradicate racism? I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not going to say that I have the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. I know that I believe that education works. Um, I believe that exposure works. Um, I mean, I mean, showing people that this is what it means, convincing people who think that it's benign, that it's not benign. There are enough people in the middle like that who need to know how bad it is so that they start to argue against it instead of thinking it's fine and it's just a political argument. It's not a political argument. So I think you have to do things like that. Um, 
and then and then we have to recognize that what this is is the is the weaponizing of a minority viewpoint who are trying to cling desperately onto power because demographics are against them. So getting him out of power. So there are two schools of thought on this. Um, one is, say, Janan Ganesh in the Financial Times last year uh, wrote, and I thought it made a lot of sense. You've got to defeat Trump at the polls. If, if you get him out of office uh, via impeachment, that will just poison the atmosphere even more. Mm. Um, but we're on the impeachment path now. Yeah. Um, how do you think that will end up? And do you think it's it's the right way to remove him from yeah. office? Well, I agreed with Janana a year ago. I was saying yeah. the same thing. I thought I thought that Trump needed to be removed politically because it's the um, it's the the mechanism that most Americans would view as most legitimate. Um, and anything else could be you know uh, um, called a political hit job and whatever else. Um, but now he's crossed so many lines. Um, I think that as a country we have to reassert the legitimacy of the process and to say he's so clearly he's so clearly um, not just corrupt and criminal and unfit for office, which we knew through the campaign, everybody knew it who voted for him. Um, they just, you know, lied to themselves about it, I suppose. Mm. Um, but it was always in plain sight. But now he is deranged, you know? So, I mean, he just is. And and people are just pretending that he isn't, but he's like deranged in plain sight. So his mental competencies are in very real question. Um, anybody who works on, um, who works with people with dementia um, are, uh, see that he's, you know, his textbook, Advanced Dementia. Um, so, and again, this is not, I'm not scoring cheap yeah. points. This is a reality. Um, and the, and so, so the, the question of whether he can continue to do this is a very real one. And as, as a, a country that claims to be about the rule of law, I feel very strongly that we have to reassert accountability. Right. But can it succeed? Sure. And if it fails, uh, what are the risks? Yeah. So to take us to the chances so of success yeah. so, there, so there are two, obviously, yeah, you say, so it's binary, right? In other yeah. words, yeah. So, um, so everybody's saying it will definitely fail because Mitch McConnell's Senate will not vote to remove him and they have to do that. That's the way impeachment works. And that the GOP Senate that has propped Trump up are not going to be the Senate that removes mm -hmm. him. Well, that's a political calculus, and um, Mitch McConnell is nothing if not calculating, <laughs> and he's as corrupt as the day is long. So it depends on, um, yeah, you heard it here first, yes. and Mitch can sue me if he doesn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, and so it depends on his paymasters, it depends on what they want, and, but basically, you know, it comes down to whether they see Trump as a tiger they can continue to ride. And, at the, at the, and I said this from the moment he got elected, at the second they view him as a liability, they will cut him loose, chop him into pieces, and feed him to the dogs. They don't care about him, you know? Um, he is a useful idiot, and when he stops being useful, they will remove him. Now. I personally think that right now, I mean, it's such a volatile situation, you know, prophecy is uh, useless. But my own feeling is that the direction of travel right now is that um, McConnell, start, he, McConnell criticized Trump for the first time the other day, saying that Syria was a mistake. Has that been a real turning point? Because I thought even Lindsey Graham, yeah. you know. Yeah. A, 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 a saying that he, his position on impeachment hadn't changed from what he said in Watergate, which was that what Trump just did was an impeachable offense. So the noises are starting to change. Um, and that's significant in my view. And the um, and so if I had to, you know, go put, for it. put the proverbial gun <laughs> to my head and say what I think, you know, write in the envelope and what I think is yeah. going to happen. Um, my best guess is that Trump will continue with the crazy because he can't stop himself, clearly can't or won't. Um, and he will continue to be such a problem that McConnell will view it as more useful to get rid of him, um, in particular because they have another useful idiot waiting in the wings who is who is Pence. Um, 
and um, and he is a predictable, useful idiot, and he's he, and he's a theocrat, so he brings the Christian nationalists on board, and and he's a he's a more kind of career politician. He's a more of traditional thing. They know how to deal with him. A lot of the Republicans would be very happy with a President Pence. So I think that the most likely outcome is that. Um, they will do a Nixon-style deal and they'll tell him that if he goes, President Pence will pardon him and his family. Now, but what about the Democrats? Um, Because at the end of the day, they still have to pick a candidate that can win. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the the current race? Yeah. Well, I was very struck by something that um, Ben Rhodes said at an event that I was, we were talking about exactly this stuff in Mexico a few weeks ago. And as some of you will know, Ben Rhodes, he was Obama's national security advisor. And um, he's now, you know, a writer and commentator. And, um, And he pointed out something that I hadn't noticed, which is that for 50 years, every time the Democrats have run a safe, centrist, you know, um, caution, middle of the road candidate, they've lost and they've lost badly. So uh, um, Kerry, Dukakis, um, uh, Mondale, Mondale got destroyed. Um, the, um, I'm forgetting a couple of obvious ones. Yes. And, and of course, um, Hillary Clinton was viewed that way mm. as well, as the establishment safe, cautious, centrist figure that the, that the middle of the road and the left-leaning Republicans might go for. They always lose badly. The, the Democrats, in my view, need to, they need, they need to mobilize their base, who are progressives. They need to excite progressives. So who are the Democrats who win? JFK, Jimmy Carter, who you might not think of as an outsider candidate, but by God, he was. And in the wake of Watergate, he was absolutely going in there to clean out the, the mess, and he was ethical, um, and they knew that, um, which is why he didn't last, but anyway, it's another story. Um, and, um, and Clinton, who of course was an outsider, yeah. um, and then Obama, the ultimate outsider, right? That's what electrifies the progressives. So right now, where's that energy? That energy is entirely with Elizabeth Warren. Um, that is where, you know, young people are queuing up for hours to have selfies with her and she's pulling the conversation left. She's progressive enough. Some of the people on the far left don't view her as sufficiently progressive and they prefer Sanders, but she, I think she's, uh, far left enough to, um, to energize a progressive base. Yeah, and base. funny, her talk about kind of trust busting, you know, yeah. breaking up the big tech companies. It was so reminiscent of, um, the early, uh, 19th century. Exactly. Or, exactly. Or 20th these century. Same, yeah, these the, same arguments about the American dream. Yeah. She would, she, but, but that's a real key issue though and I and even I, I presume you saw that town hall um, uh, uh, sequence yeah. last week where the guy asked her yeah. about same-sex marriage and she was humorous and she put him down yeah now I thought she absolutely did the right thing but some people were saying oh no she's going to alienate the middle yeah so you're happy enough that swinging well, left and mobilizing the base is the right strategy. I think that progressives, and particularly young people, we've got to get young people yeah. into the ballot booth for this election. They stayed away in droves from voting for Hillary. Yeah. And although the, all, the, um, all the polling showed that if they had voted, they would have voted for her overwhelmingly, they just didn't bother because they weren't energized. Yeah, I they keep were, saying that to people. Trump didn't win, Hillary no, lost. Yeah, they didn't abs- come out to vote That's for her. absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and he only won by, he won by a, a mm. nail-biter in three states, 70 37,000 votes in three yeah. states. And it was, it was a fluke in important kinds of ways. And of course, yeah. she did win the popular vote, which is also important. The Electoral College matters here. So we need young people. In my view, young people are just as passionately for same-sex marriage as the Christian right is passionately against same-sex marriage. And the fact is, is that anybody who is against same-sex marriage was never going to vote Democrat. Yeah. Anybody who feels that strongly about it, I mean, they're going to vote with the Christian right. That's where they're going to go. So the idea that we should be pandering to them um, it doesn't work. 
first of all. So there's a pragmatic argument. I also think it's wrong. And I think at the end of the day, with this kind of situation, this is we're, we have to return to that point about aspiration and ideals and principles. People should be voting for what they believe in, and pe- candidates should be saying what they believe in. And there are an awful lot, you know, the, the people who will come out and say that they're for gun reform and that they're for same-sex marriage and that they are, you know, anti-racist and that they are anti-misogynist um, and that they're willing to say that they're feminist. These are the people who are going to get young people into the ballot booth, not some mealy-mouthed guy in a suit saying, "Oh, well, you know, some people are against same-sex marriage, and we have to respect." them. That is not going to get 18 year olds, you know, like, yeah, I got to vote for that guy. You know? Okay. I'm convinced. Okay. (laughs) We'll throw it open to the floor then. Have we any questions? Oh, great. So we have a gentleman here in the middle, Red Jumper. Oh yeah. Thanks. That was really interesting, Sarah. Uh, The impeachment (laughs) bought Sarah's. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We we all know that the impeachment is, is going to go on, but as you know, it requires a two thirds Senate majority to get rid of him. But there's also an unknown clause, is there not, where a president can be gotten rid of if three quarters of the cabinet think he's unfit for office. That's correct. Oh, yeah. And the vice president. That's the 25th Amendment. It'd be a double hit, yeah. Yeah, yeah we could do. So the, so the 25th Amendment was brought in after JFK. Um, and it was because they realized that if JFK had not died outright and Lyndon Johnson taken the presidency, assumed the rights of office immediately because it actually was passed because of the um, improvements in medical technology. They realized that Kennedy could have been in a vegetative state and the, and the succession uh, would have been very unclear. What do you do at that point? So they passed an amendment talking about when the president was rendered unfit. If he was unfit for office medically, physically, or mentally, because again, you know, if he had brain damage or something from being shot, right? Mm. So mentally or physically unfit for office, then the, um, as you say, the majority of the cabinet led by the VP can say that the president is no longer, that they're assuming the powers of the presidency. Now, it's never been invoked. It's there as a failsafe. Um, it, it would be an even more radical move than impeachment. We have impeached. This is the fourth impeachment process that has begun. The impeachment process of Nixon did not lead to an impeachment trial, but... Um, the impeachment process began, and that was what forced him out. Andrew Johnson was impeached in 1868, and of course, Bill Clinton was impeached in 1997, or was it 98? Anyway, mm. um, and both Johnson and Clinton were impeached, but not removed. So there's more. So the, uh, as radical as impeachment sounds, it's more, you know, it's more familiar, um, and it's and it's uh, it's a legally safer ground right now, and it's a lower threshold, as you say. It's just two thirds of the Senate. So I think that's likely to be the way they keep going, but it is kind of the way that Pence could stage a coup, you know? And the fact is, is that it's hard to imagine that there are not people seriously having that conversation behind the scenes. I mean, I, Pence is dumb as a rock, um, <laughs> which by the way is how I like my political opponents. So I'm, I'm, people keep saying, you can't want a President Pence. I'm like, he's dumb, he's predictable. He took the vice presidency, the nomination, because he was the most unpopular governor in America and he needed a way to save his face. And so he thought, well, everybody thought Trump was gonna lose and he would take the VP and then he could be like, oh, well, I, I left Indiana because I was, uh, because I was the vice presidential nominee and then lo and behold he won it so the guy couldn't run a midwestern state he's not going to win a national election so i'm quite i'd be quite happy for him to take over so even he as stupid as he is will recognize that there is a there is a possibility here where he becomes the president and he probably wants that to happen i'm guessing who doesn't you know so so yes i think it's a live possibility but at the moment i wouldn't put any money on it but it is legally there absolutely anyone else 
Oh, great. Okay. So two here and the lady. Do you want to take the lady first, maybe? Hi, like, thank you. Um, was Pearl Harbor not a vindication or a validation then of the First Nation or American First racism? In, w- in what sense? As in like the Japanese attacked. I mean, was it used as such? Oh, oh I see. Yeah. Um, it could have been, but it wasn't. Um, and so, although there was certainly a racist response to Pearl Harbor, um, which is the Japs are coming for us, and there was very Orientalist, you know, um, imagery and language about that. So certainly racism was incited in response to that, but they didn't converge it with America First. I think because America First, by that point, had become so much the slogan for staying out of the war, and Pearl Harbor pushed the country into the war, that they weren't going to re-co-opt it yet again. They could have. Um, You're absolutely right. But the way it played out was, instead, it fell into disrepute for half a century instead. But it could have. Um, and was that also because, you know, Lindbergh had such a close association with the Nazis? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, in fact, the U.S. government... Um, brought a sedition trial against some of the most prominent America Firsters in 1944 um, and tried them for treason. Um, it was a really bad case and it fell apart because they did it, so they shouldn't have done it and it was, a, and it was a, a political mistake. But the fact remains that at that point, America First became a kind of byword for sedition. Mm-hmm. So that you weren't, at that point, you couldn't re, um, reappropriate it. So you had to wait a few decades for it to f- fall out of everybody's memory and then- That's amazing, actually, Leave it to Trump it? to bring it back. Yeah, that yeah. it is back. Yeah. yeah. So down here, yeah. yeah. And then I'll come to you uh, next then. Um, yeah. I'm originally from the States as well, but I've lived in Hi. London a long time. <laughs> and I'm always glad to get my state having a tick, teapot dome. Oh, and I you're Wyoming. It, yeah, Wyoming. Crowheart, Wyoming is where I'm from really. Never mind wow. the accent. Okay. The question I wanted to ask is my experience of my brothers and sisters and the kids at my sons go and shoot with when we're in Wyoming Mm. is that they don't know their own history. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether you see the education within high schools and junior colleges, which is where ordinary working class hyphenated US's and black folks go, will ever have a kind of deeper understanding. Mm. So I found it very helpful because I like, this is why my family hated Lindbergh. (laughs) But also that whole first Americans, but the guys on the res are the first Americans? Exactly. You know, like, exactly. They just don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They just don't know. Yeah. And I think that, you know, America, I agree with you, America does a very bad job of teaching its own history um, and, of, and of coming to terms with it. You know, we're not going to move on if we don't. And so things like the response to the New York Times 1619 project where people just didn't even want to have that conversation, right? But what we're seeing, I think, in the response to Trump is, as you may know, there's, you know, we've, we've had the first lynching museum was created in the last couple of years by a young man, actually, a young person who said, we don't know enough about the terrible atrocities that were, um, that were done with lynching. We don't teach the Klan well enough. You don't really learn about it until you get to university and you have to study history, so you have to choose to learn about it. Um, so I absolutely agree with that. I think that we, we have to teach this history. That's why, I ended, you know, I, as you might have heard in the introduction, I, all of my stuff was literature, but I've ended up doing more and more history because I think we desperately need to understand it. And people around the world don't know about this history of lynching. I mean, I'm assuming most of you in the audience didn't mm-hmm. know what I was saying about history. In my experience, people in Europe aren't, including historians. I mean, you know, academic historians are shocked when I tell them this because, and they're doubly shocked because they think they should have known it, you know, that it should have gotten out more. So I absolutely agree. And I do hope that um, when Sarah 
Sarah asked, you know, how can we fight it? I really do believe, I am an educator, I believe that education works. And so I think that, you know, um, making people more aware of this is very important, but also the reverse is true. If we think about when the Tea Party took over, and we're now looking at what it looks like when the Tea Partiers within the GOP are in charge of things, and it turns out that when they said they wanted to burn down the government, they kind of meant it. Um, <laughs> and, the, and we should have taken that seriously. But the point is, as the great historian Jill Lepore at Harvard pointed out in a, um, a book she wrote called The Whites of Their Eyes, um, she's an early Americanist, and she said, the problem is these guys who are invoking the founding fathers all the time, the last time they learned anything about the American Revolution or the founding fathers was when they were 10 years old. You know, we don't teach it after that point. So they've got a kindergartner's idea of who the founding fathers were and what the arguments were. And if we want to have a well-educated citizenry, people have to have more civic engagement. And to have better civic engagement, you have to understand your own history. As I'm pretty sure I don't have to tell anyone in Dublin, you know? I mean, that's where And of where course, you know, there's been this exact conversation in Ireland where there was the argument about whether or not history should be mandatory um, up to um, high school yeah. uh, level, we'll call it. Well, I'm for it. Okay. <laughs> so the lady down here, the blue, yeah. I don't get a vote, but... <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Hi. Hi. You're, a, you're a powerhouse, <laughs> you are. Um, should Ireland be worried, stuck in the sea as we are, between Brexit Britain and Trump's America. Um, can we avoid contamination? And I'm asking that as a history teacher. <laughs> what a you good know, question. Th that's yeah. a very interesting question, actually, because sometimes these conversations pop up here about immigration, you know, and, and it worries me. Do you stifle the conversation, say you're not allowed to talk about it, or do you indulge the conversation and get it out there? Mm. It's, you know, how do you? It's tricky, yeah. and I don't think there are any right answers, right? Except that, yeah. except that, the, to go back to that point about education, I think the more information you get out there and the more that people have to uh, listen to, you know, facts and evidence-based and not just kind of, here's my belief, and, you know, um, and I read it on Facebook, so it must be true. Um, uh, but I think that um, as far as <laughs> whether you should be worried, well, you know, when I was flying here yesterday, I said to my husband, we need to figure out how to move to Dublin because it's going to be the only decent place to live in the, um, <laughs> in the next you. few years. I'm trapped between them. So I feel the other way around. I'm trapped between America and Britain and I want to come here where people are still rational as far as I can tell. Um, <laughs> I know it's from a distance, but you all seem rational. Um, so, it's all relative. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, yeah. So um, should you be worried? Uh, yes, I think everybody should be worried. I think that all Western democracies are seeing the consequences of um, these digital transformations obviously have a lot to do with, we haven't talked about them, they obviously mm -hmm. have a lot to do with what's happening politically right now. But also, and again, I, I guess I will keep coming back to this point about education. You're a history teacher, so you won't mm -hmm. mind me doing it. Um, I personally think that it's not a coincidence that um, Western democracy is finding itself in crisis in many places at exactly the same time that the teaching of history and the teaching of humanities more generally is getting scoffed at as a luxury that societies don't need anymore and that we should just be teaching everybody to be an engineer. Now, I'm yeah. all for engineers. God knows we need bridges. You know, I'm not against engineers. But I want engineers who understand their own history. And I want engineers who understand those, those ideas about civic society and who see that democracy and the ideas of the humanities, they all come from enlightenment. They all come from the same and, moment and in the well, same place. Sorry to cut across you, Not but I think perhaps did we take a lot for granted yes. that there was this idea that once a country reached a certain level of income per capita, yeah. I, I think it's $14,000 or something, mm. once they got into a settled way of having democratic elections and used to it, there was no going back. Yeah, exactly. Enlightenment would just remain. Yeah. 
yeah, but if say I'm thinking now about Hungary, you exactly. know, and when we like genuinely, it's I don't think it's an exaggeration to to look at what's happening in Britain and be scared. Yeah, uh, where lying oh, simply doesn't matter I'm anymore. I'm very scared. Yeah, so. So, so do we need to start realizing we cannot take what we have for granted? Absolutely. And yeah. I think the way those ideas are transmitted is through humanities classes, right? Yeah. It's through all of that stuff, through literature, philosophy, through the law, through whatever your route to that is. But it's the studying of the ideas and the ethics and the civic, uh, you know, the, the civic foundations of our society and understanding those. I, I believe not only in mandatory history classes, but I really believe now in mandatory civics classes. I think that every student should have to understand the democratic process. They should have to understand the history of their own electoral process in their own nation. And, that, and, and to have some sense of how it works and where it came from. And as I say, it's, it's related to 18th century Enlightenment ideas. They all come out of the same place, saying that authority no longer comes from God and it no longer comes from the crown. It comes from the individual citizen. And that that is about evidence-based rational thought. And all of those ideas are tied up in the idea of the individual agent who could then be an enlightened citizen voting at the voting booth and you wouldn't need to have the despot who controlled the ignorant masses, the benighted masses, right? It's all all tied up together. And the problem is, is we thought that we didn't need to teach that part and it just happened automatically and would just transmit itself and it doesn't. And I, you know, and I think that we can see the hunger for it in things like this. History festivals are, are exploding all over the Western world, you know, because people like all of us here are wanting to understand better these contexts so that we can understand better why this is happening, but then hopefully also see more clearly how we might combat it and strengthen the foundations of what we believe in. You know, I think that's probably a good place to... Oh, hang on, there's one, is there one more question down there? Okay, we'll take one more. Is that all right, Bert? And, um, <laughs> and then we'll wind it up. Um, an excellent presentation. Thank, Thank you very you. much. And um, I'm looking forward to getting the book signed. Mm. Um, but there are a few aspects I'd like to raise. Um, and that's to do with Native Americans. Well, I was in the States last year and I noted that sort of like Native Americans are getting a very raw deal in terms <laughs> of representation. They're out of the picture. That's absolutely politically... Right on either side of the equation, they're just not there. So I had a worry about that. Yeah. I also have a worry about sort of like, well, Trump, for example, is well supported when I was in the States and I was meeting various people from other backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's the intelligence question of Trump and he'll always be in the, 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 the where will I say, in the dunce's box mm -hmm. for that. But when it comes to sort of like other issues of his support base, mainly economic or whatever, I'd like some comment on that as to why, for example, the recent uh, Chinese deal has been securing what is going to be good sales for farmers in America. They're so Trump is going to get a huge bounce back of support in that area. And the other area was sort of like um, a meeting personally with uh, veterans mm who were very happy with the deal that they were getting under Trump mm -hmm. uh, because I met two people who basically had, um, they were amputees and they got their um, uh, legs fixed as well and they'd gone off on a holiday as a result and I met them on, on, a, on a plane talking, oh, Trump is great, mm -hmm. Trump is great. Mm -hmm. so, so there are, there are people on one side sure. of the fence that I don't really see, they get into the debate here, I, I hear about the American first, America dream, mm -hmm. but it's these other aspects yeah. of sort of so there are people. A great around. question, yeah. so unfortunately we've only about a minute. Yeah. <laughs> sure. No, no, I can do it, I mean, I can do it quickly because in a sense I can't answer it, um, which is that the um, his base remains strong, there are, there are, you know, he's got a 40% approval rating um, within the Republican, so with the people who like him continue to like him. 
Um, and it seems that nothing he does will dent that they, the fact that they like him. Um, he is, uh, we should never underestimate how important Fox News is to that calculus. Um, the, the people who like him only see a constant feed of Trump is great information. And, uh, uh, and so that is reinforcing all of that. And it's a big problem that America needs to deal with. Um, but uh, again, I would just come back to the fact that the, the polling numbers that are, you know, the people who strongly approve of impeachment uh, are, it's like 60 to 40. And, and Nixon, Nixon was never, Nixon's numbers were never like that, even in the middle of, uh, of Watergate. So the, the, I, I, the, at the end of the day, I feel like those guys are going to get outvoted and they need to get outvoted and they're allowed to support him. That's fine. That's how democracy works. But they're in a minority and they need to lose. Sarah, that has been an astonishing race <laughs> through a century or more of, of these very potent uh, phrases. The book is fantastic. There are so many anecdotes and bits of colour that we uh, couldn't even get to today, not least Trump's father's uh, involvement, which is one to watch out for. So please show your appreciation for Sarah thank Churchill. You. Oh, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. 